0: Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God all right good evening everybody if you want to go ahead and uh find your place we'll get started we have got an awful awful lot of stuff to cover tonight um in fact i had to uh, i hate to do this but i had to actually take stuff out it was just i had it was too long and i know people's got to go get their kids i just i had to take stuff out it was just but we still got a lot to cover so uh Welcome back to our study in relevant cultural topics. And tonight we are going to continue uh, with our lesson last week. We started on truth and we will continue that tonight with part two. Now, before we get very far, I just want to reiterate one more time. Why are we starting with truth? And here's the reason why. Over the next few weeks, we're going to cover uh, topics that you can see there Abortion, race, gender, sexuality, things like that. And as I cover these topics, you're going to hear me make the same statement over and over again. And this is what I'm going to say. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And what I cannot have is somebody sitting out in the audience and thinking to themselves, "Eh, how do we really know? You know, it's been 2,000 years and the Bible's been copied so many times and translated and uh, how do we really know what the Bible says? How, how do we know that that's really what Jesus said or, or he really did that, that thing that he did? How do, we, how do we really know? So before you and I can even have a conversation on any of those topics, the very first thing we've got to decide is, is this, is the Bible true? Is the Bible trustworthy, or another way to put it, is the Bible worthy of our trust? That is why we start with truth. That's where we have to to start if we're going to learn anything or have any conversation on those other topics. So, this is the question we're going to try to answer. We started last week, and we will finish tonight. Now, how do we determine if the Bible is true and trustworthy? Well, what we do is we examine the evidence I mentioned last week that there is a science out there called textual criticism. And there are scientists or scholars who apply three tests to ancient documents, not just the Bible, but any ancient document to determine if that document is trustworthy, is it, is it credible. Now, the first test was the bibliographical test, and we covered that last week. Now, I just don't have time to review that. And so if you weren't here last week, I would strongly, strongly uh, recommend that you go back to YouTube and watch last week's lesson. But coming out of that lesson, this is what we know. We know with a very, very, very high degree of confidence that what we have in this book is what was originally written down by the apostles in the New Testament. In fact, we have a higher degree of confidence in this book ...than any other ancient book of record. Uh, Of the 20,000 lines in the New Testament... ...20,000 lines, only 40 of them are even disputed. That is one quarter of 1% of the entire New Testament. And by the way, when you look at those 40 lines... ...not a single one of them affect the teaching... ...or the doctrine of the New Testament in any way. We also know that those documents were written... ...those letters, those gospels were written... Uh, in such a short time period within ten to fifty years after the death of Jesus, which is much too uh, soon for myth or legend to enter in, so what the bibliographical test told us is that what we have in our hand today is what the apostles wrote down when they put pen to paper now that 's great, but that doesn 't tell us that it 's true, right It tells us that we have what they wrote down, but it doesn 't tell if, <clears throat> excuse me it doesn 't tell us that it 's trustworthy doesn't tell us that it's credible. That is the job of these other two tests that we're going to look at tonight. Now, the first test we're going to look at is called the internal evidence test. Now, the internal evidence test, what it does is it looks at things that are written inside the Bible. That's what it means by internal. It looks inside the Bible to see if things inside the Bible are trustworthy. Let me give you an example. This is from the Hindu Bible. I don't know if you even knew the Hindus had a Bible, but they do. This is the Hindu Bible. It was written between 900 and 200 B.C. And this is what it says. The world is flat and triangular and is composed of seven stages, one of honey, another of sugar, a third of butter, and another of wine. And the whole mass is born on the heads of countless elephants, and when they shake their heads, that's what causes earthquakes. Okay? Now, that's ridiculous, right? You understand if the Bible has anything like that in it, then the Bible's not trustworthy. In fact, let me say this. If there's even one statement in the Bible that contradicts known scientific facts or known historical facts or known archaeological facts, just one, then the Bible would be uh, discredited completely. But there's not. There's not even one. Now, I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that everything in the Bible is validated by science and, and archaeology. The Bible, our God is a supernatural God. The Bible's a supernatural book. Pastor Henry said it this past Sunday. If God wants to part the Red Sea, if he wants to make an axe head float, if he wants to make a donkey talk, or if he wants to open a blind eye, he's going to do that and nobody, he doesn't care. So there's going to be always supernatural things in the Bible that science can't explain, but that's not what we're talking about. What I'm saying, is there anything in this book, just one statement in this book, that contradicts known scientific or historical facts? And the answer to that is no, there's, there's not even one. In fact, what you'll see tonight is it's actually completely the other way around. With, let's, let's start with science. And these are just some amazing things that uh, I've picked up over through the years. Let me show you some things in the Bible. Let's start in the book of Job. I don't know how many of you know this, but the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. A lot of people think it's Genesis because Genesis comes first, but Genesis was written by Moses around 1400 B.C. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Job actually lived at the time of the patriarchs. We can tell that, uh, for example, his age, how long he lived. So he would have lived around the time of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. So it's a very old book. This is what it says. Let me give you a few scriptures. Job 26 7. It says this. He stretches out the north over empty space and he hangs the earth on nothing. Now this was written in a time where there are no telescopes. There, there's no Hubble telescope to go up and look at anything. And the Bible says the earth is hung on nothing. Now you have already see the Hindus thought it was on the backs of elephants. The ancient Greeks thought it Atlas. You ever seen the, the uh, The the god Atlas that has the earth on his shoulder, they thought that the gods held the earth up. But Job said, through the inspired scripture, he hangs the earth on nothing. By the way, almost over 3,000 years later, that was discovered by a man named Copernicus in 1475. Job was right. Job 28.5 says this, Food is grown on the earth above, but down below the earth is melted as by fire. Now you tell me, how in the world... In 2000 BC, does a man know that the, the center of the earth is a molten core? That wasn't confirmed by science, by the way, until 1936, almost 4,000 years later. They could have just, and you hear me say this a lot, they could have just read the Bible. Job 38:16. these are the words of God speaking to Job. He said, have you ever entered into the springs of the sea? God saying that inside the sea and the oceans, there are geysers, there are springs. And and again, I don't know how Job knew it, because we couldn't figure it out until the 1970s when the technology came along to build submersibles that could go that deep. But when they went that deep, they found that absolutely there are springs in in the sea. It took the 1970s to figure that out, but Job said it, Almost four thousand years ago, Job thirty six twenty seven to twenty eight says this: He draws up the drops of water; they distill his mist in rain. The skies pour down, in which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. What Job is talking there about is the hydrologic cycle: water evaporates, it goes into the cloud, it condenses, and it falls down as precipitation or rain. That's what Job's talking about. That was not discovered until fifteen eighty. By a guy named Bernard Plassey. In fact, his theories weren't even accepted till the early 1900s. But now we all we all know that's how it works, right? But they could have just read the Bible, because Job knew it four thousand years ago. Isaiah forty twenty two. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Job knew the earth wasn't flat. Job knew the the earth. I'm sorry. Isaiah knew the earth was a circle or a or a globe. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. It wasn't until the 1900s that we figured out that the universe is ex- still expanding like a curtain. And Isaiah said that sometime between 739 and 681 B.C. Genesis 17:12. This is uh, uh, God talking to Abraham. He said this, He who is eight days old among you will be circumcised, every male child. So God makes a, a covenant with Abraham. And he says, this is a sign of the covenant. On the eighth day, you circumcise your male children. Now, think about that. That's odd, right? Why eight? Why not seven? Why not nine? Why not four? Why not 32? What, what is it about the eighth day? Well, guess what? Scientists discovered that vitamin K, which is the clotting, uh, the, uh, the clotting thing inside of your blood, reaches its highest level in a male's life, 110% of normal, on guess what? The eighth day. In fact, go Google it when you get home. Uh, when you're, if a child is, is uh, at the hospital, is circumcised, guess what they give them a shot of? Vitamin K. That is the amazing Bible. Psalms 8, 6-8, you made him have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Now, that's an odd statement. That was written by the psalmist sometime around 1000 B.C. And what he's saying is that the seas have paths or rivers in them. In, eight, in the 1800s, a guy by the name of Matthew Morey Go Google that guy. He's a really interesting story. He's a Christian. He loved the Bible. And he's reading the book of Psalms one day, and he says, it, sa- it talks about the paths of the sea. And he thought, well, the Bible says it, it must be true. So he starts doing these, these experiments. And he ends up discovering the continental currents. And, and he, back in the day, it would take 100 days for a ship to go, say, from A to B. And when he discovered those currents, he cut those trips like in half. He's known as the father of oceanography. He wrote all these different manuals that was, were used in schools and universities, all because he just believed what the Bible said. And he confirmed that in 1855. Ecclesiastes 1.6, the wind goes toward the south. It turns around to the north. It whirls around continually, and the wind returns on its circuit. So what the, uh, the, uh, the writer here, who this was written probably between 970 and 930 B.C., is saying that the wind has a circuit that it follows, a path, and it just does it over and over and over again. It wasn't until the 1800s that scientists confirmed that, that in the northern hemisphere, the winds go clockwise. In the southern hemisphere, they go counterclockwise. They confirmed that. By the way, the interesting thing about that is you can't feel that on the ground. Those currents are up in the air. But the writer of Ecclesiastes knew it. Jeremiah 33:22. God says, I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars in the sky. That was written between 650 and 570 BC. Once again, by the way, with a man with no telescope, no way to look into the heavens. Did you know that scientists actually have counted the stars in the sky that you can see with your naked eye? So if you were to get away from any ambient light, get away from the city, go out into the desert on a perfectly clear night, the best you can do is 4,458 stars. There's actually 9,000, but, but you can only see the part that's in your hemisphere. On the other side of the world, you couldn't see them. So the most we can see with the naked eye is about 4,500 stars. Now, by the way, that's a lot, right? But it's not countless. It's not countless. How did he know they were countless? Scientists have uh, have discovered today or estimate that in the Milky Way, our galaxy, there are 300 billion stars. In our universe, there are 70 billion trillion. And the articles that I read said it could easily be ten times that. In other words, they're still counting because the Bible said they are countless. Genesis 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Did you know that DNA has confirmed that every living person on this earth can trace their lineage to one man and one woman. DNA, science has confirmed that. I mean, you can see the articles right there. By the way, I don't know if you know this, I'll just throw this in. Evolution is dead. They won't tell you that. They'll keep telling you it's a fact. They'll keep lying to you. But DNA was the death knell for evolution. Darwin, when he had his theory, he he knew there were holes in it. But he just assumed from the 1800s forward that discoveries would fill in the holes. The exact opposite has happened. Discoveries have blown holes in it. And even even, uh, secular newspapers and secular scientists today are calling for a new theory of evolution. Now, they'll keep teaching it. They'll keep lying about it. But folks, evolution is dead. They just had not, they haven't figured it out yet. Now, let's turn to something else. Again, remember, we're looking inside the Bible. I want to look at the testimony of the apostles. The ability for somebody to relate something truthfully has a lot to do with how close they are to the events, both geographically and chronologically. Let me give you an example. Let's say that I wanted to write a book about Pastor Henry. Now, I've known Pastor Henry for probably over 20 years and... And so I've, I'm an eyewitness, right? I can, I can maybe uh, confirm certain things he's done, certain things he's said. But there's also parts of his life that I, I don't know anything about. But guess what? I know where his brothers live. So I can go talk to his family. I can talk to his brothers. I could drive up to Georgia to one of the churches that he pastored. In. Are you with me? I'm an eyewitness or I can talk to eyewitnesses. And I'm all, they're all in the area that I have access to. So I could write a book. That would be fairly truthful. But let's say that I wanted to write a book about, I don't know, Napoleon. Now i got a problem, right? Because there's no eyewitnesses available. Everything I write would be second-hand. And to get access to it or, or to, to even figure anything out, I'd have to go to the other side of the world, to a country and a culture I know nothing about. You see, when it comes to these two things, the Bible is unparalleled. You see, the Bible, the New Testament, was written by eyewitnesses or people who spoke to eyewitnesses. Let me give you an example. Luke chapter 1, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which has been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Luke said, the guys that touched him, the guys that, that ate with him, they told me about it. How about 2 Peter 1.16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 1 John 1, 1.3, the Apostle John says, that which we have seen and that which we have heard, we declare to you. So the whole New Testament is written by eyewitnesses or people who talk to eyewitnesses. Not only that, but when they wrote it down. They were very specific about times and dates and places where things happened. For example, Luke 3.1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. Listen, when you make stuff up, you don't do that. You, when you find a liar, they don't do that, right? Because you can be called on that stuff. These guys were very, very uh, specific. There was a guy named William Ramsey in the, in the I think, in the early 18, in the 1800s. And he tried to disprove the book of Acts. He was an archaeologist. And, and uh, he went and, and he went back and just went through all the countries that Luke had named and all the cities that Luke had named and all the islands that Luke had named. And he found that he was 100% correct. 100% correct. He could not find a single error in the book of Acts. One final thing that attests to the credibility of the New Testament. Now listen to me. Sometimes you have to read between the lines. One of the things you find in the New Testament is the writers are absolutely adamant about telling the truth, even if it makes them look bad. Let me give you an example. Mark chapter 3, 21. It says this. This is talking about Jesus. When his family, Jesus' family, heard about this, They went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Now listen, if you're making up a hero, right? If you're just making up things about this this guy, you don't do that. You you put him in the best light possible. You don't say things that his family thought he was crazy and and needed to be in an institution. But that's what they wrote. They always wrote what was true, even if it made Jesus And his family looked bad. Let me give you some other examples. the James and John competing for places in the kingdom. They wrote that down. The fact that they were all scared and ran after Jesus' arrest. They wrote that down. The fact that Peter denied him three times. They wrote that down. The fact that one time Jesus went into Galilee and he could not work miracles because of the unbelief. They wrote that down. The fact that disciples were so ignorant. How many times did Jesus just think, what is wrong with y'all? Why can't y'all figure this out? They wrote that down. And of course, they wrote down his cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They wrote that down. They were adamant about telling the truth, even when the truth made them look bad. Now, that's the internal evidence test. Not only do we have science validating it again and again and again, but we also have the testimony of the men who wrote those things down. Now, let's turn outside to what we call the external te- evidence test. Now, this is where we look at things outside the Bible that would confirm whether the Bible is true or whether the Bible is credible. Now, the first thing I want to do is I want to look at fulfilled prophecy. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I could do an entire hour on fulfilled prophecy, okay? There's that much fulfilled prophecy. I don't have time to do that. I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you my two favorite fulfilled prophecies, okay? But again, I could go on and on and on. I just don't have time. So here's the first one. Ezekiel chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. The prophet Ezekiel says this, And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. So this is the prophecy. Ezekiel prophesies that God is going to tear down this city and he's going to make it so bare that fishermen will come and spread their nets on it to dry. That's the prophecy. Okay? That prophecy was made around 600 B.C. Now at that time, you got to understand, Tyre was a very powerful city. I mean, think of like New York today. I mean, Tyre was that kind of city. It was an incredible city. And a few years after this prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege to the, uh, to the city, surrounded it. Now, it just so happened that this city backed up to the ocean, and right off the ocean was a, a right off the shore of a, a few hundred yards was, a, uh, was an island. So when he laid siege to the city, they basically gave up. They all moved out to the island. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in, ransacked the city, tore everything down, but he just left the people alone. They were out there on the island. So they went out there, and they rebuilt the city. And they fortified it and put walls up, and basically they became a strong city again. And they went on for another 300 years. Now, at that time, a lot of people would have looked at that and said, Well, that almost came true, but not quite. So they're rolling along for 300 years, and then one day in July of 332 BC, and yes, we know the exact date, this man named Alexander the Great showed up, and he walks up to the shore, and he looks out there, and he sees that island city, and he don't have any ships, and he's wondering, how am I going to get out there? So what he does, he gets an idea. He takes all the rubble from the old city, and the man builds a causeway. He builds a land bridge out of all the concrete and rocks and stuff like that. By the way, it's still there today. You can go there today and walk across the causeway that he built. It's unbelievable, right? So he goes out there, ransacks the city, uh, tears it all down, and uh, you know they just they're, they're they're weakened. And then he ends up dying, and uh, other people come, and over time the city just gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And that brings us to the 1800s. In the 1800s. There was a man by the name of Philip Myers. He was the dean of uh, some big school up in Ohio, and he wrote textbooks. He wrote a textbook called A General History for Colleges and High Schools. He was not a preacher. He wasn't a Christian or anything like this. And in this textbook, on page 55, this is what it says. It says, Tyre never regained the place she had previously held in the world. The larger part of the site of the once gray city is now bare as the top of a rock a place where fishermen that still frequent the spot spread their nets to dry. Let me tell you, when God says something, it may take 500 years, it may take 1,000 years, it may take 2,000 years, but let me tell you, you can take it to the bank. You can take it to the bank because it's going to happen. That's my first favorite prophecy. Here's my second. Isaiah chapter 53. This was written between 739 and 681 B.C. It contains 15 fulfilled prophecies of Jesus Christ. But here's my favorite thing about it. Anybody with half a brain can read this chapter and know who he's talking about. So let's read it. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now, again, you can take that chapter, take it to anybody in the world with half a brain and say, who is that talking about? And they would say what? It's Jesus. It is just absolutely obvious that he's talking about Jesus Christ. In fact, it's so obviously talking about Jesus that skeptics for years and years and years said, there is no way that could have been written before he died. They said this for centuries. There is no way that could have been written before he died. Somebody wrote that after the fact. And for the longest time, the, the latest copy, remember, uh, Jesus died, obviously, you know, 33 A.D., somewhere right in there. The oldest copy of Isaiah that we had was from 900 A.D. Remember, it's written in about 600 B.C., and, the, you know, some 1,500-year gap, we had a, the oldest copy we had was from 900 A.D. So Christians had no way to refute that. We couldn't go show them a copy of Isaiah that was written before he died, so we just couldn't say anything. We just had to believe by faith. We just had to walk by faith that that was written when the Bible said it was written until until 1947. In 1947, some little shepherd boys are out there with their sheep and they're having fun they're throwing some rocks down a hole and they hear some pottery break. and they go down in that hole and they discover these big pots and they're full of parchments, we know those parchments as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the amazing thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were there, was all kind of stuff. I mean, there was shopping lists, and and I mean, it was a community that lived there, and all kind of stuff. But but one of the things that was there was an entire copy of the Book of Isaiah, not part of it, the entire copy. And lo and behold, when they compared it. Against what we have, it was exactly the same word for word. That's the first thing. Then they dated it. And when they dated it, they determined that it was written in 350 BC, almost 400 years before Jesus died. That is the amazing Bible. That is true. You see, one day we're going to stand before God and he's going to say, I had the truth. I showed you the truth. And remember, truth don't care about your excuses. Truth is true. You know, I I used to tell, I used to make fun, not really fun and fun. I would say to the kids sometimes, if you're not going to believe, get up and leave. Because you're going to be responsible for what you hear. To whom much is given, much is required. This Bible is amazing. It is amazing truth. Now, let's turn to another favorite subject of mine, and that is archaeology. 1981, I graduated from high school that year. They made the greatest movie ever made, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) The coolest guy, the coolest hero. And ever since that day, I just thought archaeology was the coolest thing because he was cool, right? Right. And so I've always had an interest in it. I've always uh, followed it, especially biblical archaeology. I could go on again. I could, I could take a whole hour and just give you finding after finding after finding. Let me give you uh, half a dozen. The Old Test- Testament mentions the Hittites uh, civilization at least 50 times in the, in the Old Testament. For example, Gen- Genesis 23-7. But for centuries... All the way up to the 1800s, there was no evidence outside the Bible that these people even existed. And skeptics pointed and said, see, you can't trust the Bible. You can't trust the Bible. You can't use it as a historical document. There's no no evidence that these people existed until 1907. And when 1907, they excavated the Hittite capital of Hattusa. And all of a sudden, hey... (laughs) There they are. And then they went to Egypt and found a treaty in Egypt between Ramses II and the king of the Hittites. So the Hittites didn't exist until they, until they did. King David, one of the most beloved uh, uh, characters in the Old Testament, important to the kingdom of Israel, important to the Messianic line. Until 1993, there was no evidence outside the Bible that he existed until one day, behind an old wall they tore down, they found this, uh, what they call a stele, S-T-E-L-E, basically, which is a rock with writing on it. And there, just as clear as day, it said, the king of Israel and the house of David. Sixteen years later, the world of archaeology is rocked again when they unearthed King David's palace in Jerusalem. You see, King David didn't exist until he did. As late as 1961, skeptics said that Pontius Pilate did not exist, that the Bible had made him up. And then they did an excavation in the town of Caesarea. They found that stele right there, and right on there it said Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Didn't exist until he did. Now, here's my favorite. This one, and this is going to take me a couple minutes, so stick with me here, because this one has a story behind it. I don't know how many of y'all have kept up with this. I was telling the board about it a couple weeks ago in a board meeting. But I want to tell you the story of Mount Ebal and the curse tablet. This is a really interesting story. By the way, this happened two months ago. So this isn't years ago, but just two months ago in, uh, in, in April, or three months ago now, I guess. So let's go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. and You're going to like this story, so just stay with me. Deuteronomy 11, this is Moses. And Moses says this, See... I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Jerizim, and you shall set the curse on Mount Ebal. Everybody with me? Now remember, Moses ain't going into the promised land. He don't get to go in. Joshua is going to take him out, take him in. But he said when you go in, you're going to set the blessing on Mount Gerizim. And the curse on Mount Ebal. By the way, if you go to Israel today, the mountain on the left is Mount Gerizim, The mountain on the right is Mount Ebal. It's in the West Bank. It's under Palestinian control, so it's kind of hard to get to. The town in the middle is called Shechem. Shechem is famous because when, Israel, when Abraham first came up uh, into, the, uh, into the Promised Land, that's where he stopped. When the Israelites came out of Egypt and they brought Jacob's bones back with him, that's where they buried him in Shechem. So Moses says, when you get there, I want you to divide the people up. I want half of them to be on the Mount Gerizim side. That's to symbolize the blessing. And I want half of you on the Mount Ebal side. So I want you to remember Mount Ebal and curses. Mount Ebal and curses. Let's read. So this is what Moses said. If you go on and read Deuteronomy 27, I won't read it. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want half the tribes to stand on Mount Gerizim. And I want the other half of the 12 tribes to stand on Mount Ebal as the curses. And so the priest would stand right in the middle between the two mountains, and they would read the law, and they would pronounce the curses, and they would pronounce the blessings. So Joshua goes into the land. He he conquers Jericho. He conquers the city of Ai. And he says, okay, now it's time for me to do what Moses and God commanded. Joshua chapter 8. It says, at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Now, let's stop right there, okay? Did you know in, Mount, Mount, in 1980, a guy by the name of Adam Zertal found Joshua's altar? Anybody hear about it? Anybody hear about the that, that fact that they found the altar that Joshua built on Mount Ebal? They don't tell you those things, do they? Now, there's a lot of reasons why. it's a lot of politics over there when things are found in the West Bank. Under So there's a lot of Israeli and, and, and politics going on. But I also want you to know that most of these archaeologists are secular. They, they don't really care about validating the Bible. They don't publicize these things. They're not going to teach you these things in school. But Joshua's altar was found in 1980. By the way, Adam Zertal did not believe the Bible was a historical document until he found that altar. And he changed completely changed his mind. He, after that, he was, he was all behind the uh, Bible. Let's go on and read what Joshua said. It says, And all Israel stood on opposite sides of the ark, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that's written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read. Now, I highlighted the words read and write because it's obvious if you read the Bible that Moses could write and Joshua could read, right? I mean, they're reading, they're writing. And in fact, for almost 2,000 years, Christians have accepted and believed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible are known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We believe Moses wrote that. Why? Because the Bible says he did. For example, there are numerous places in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that says that. For example, Exodus 34, 27, the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, and Moses did. If you go into the rest of the Old Testament, I'll give you a few. Joshua 8, 1 Kings 2, 2 Kings 14, Ezra 6, Nehemiah 13, Daniel 9, Malachi 4. All of those say that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. They call it Moses' law or the law of Moses. But here's even more important. Jesus said that he wrote it. John 5, 46, Jesus said, If you believe Moses, you'd believe me for he what? He wrote about me. The Apostle Paul in Romans ten five says that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. It says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So the Bible is telling us that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Moses wrote down the law, which is the first five books of the Bible. Now here's the thing. If Moses did not write it, then Jesus is a liar. Paul is a liar. The Old Testament is a liar. The Bible is untruthful. Everybody with me? I mean, it's clear as a bell that Moses, the Bible says Moses wrote it. So if somehow or another Moses didn't write it, we got a big problem. The Bible is not truthful. Now, here's why I bring this up. Beginning in the 1700s, uh, a school of thought came up among Bible scholars and especially skeptics over in Germany. And they began to question that belief. They said, there ain't no way Moses wrote that the first five books. And one of their reasons was this. They said there's no way Moses could have written it because they did not have an alphabet at that time. Now remember, according to the Bible, if you track all the time, Moses would have come out of, 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 of Egypt around 1400 B.C., somewhere right in that time frame. And they said, there's, there's no alphabet. How could he have written? They were, they were illiterate. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. And they said that for years and years and years and years and years. In 2019, a guy out of Texas, an archaeologist by the name of Dr. Scott Stripling, got permission from the, uh, the people that he needed to get permission to, to go back through the dirt. They had excavated Joshua's altar. And he got permission to go back through the dirt. And they had a new sifting technique. Um, somehow using water, I don't understand, but they had a new sifting technique. So they sifted through all the dirt, and lo and behold, they found what's known as a curse tablet. It's, it's very small, it's made of lead, it's about two inches by two inches. But evidently, back in that time, it was a pretty common thing to write curses down on a lead tablet, and then close them up, and kind of, it was kind of an affirmation that if we don't do these things, then were cursed. Everybody with me? It was kind of a, 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 a seal the deal kind of a thing. Well, when they go to, to Joshua's altar and they do this sifting, they find a curse tablet. Now, here's the interesting thing the first thing they did was analyze the lead. Now, I don't know how they know this, but they found that that lead was from a mine in Greece that was active during the late Bronze Age from 1550 to 1200 BC. Now, how they know that, I don't know. And then they couldn't open it, so they had to send it to Prague and, and put it in a CT scanning machine to get the letters. And when they found the letters, they realized that it, that it was actually characteristic of the very beginning of the late Bronze Age. So they, they actually narrowed it down to about 1400 to 1300 B.C. By the way, remember, that's about the time frame that Moses would have led the people. Now, here's the interesting thing. They found it on Mount Ebal. Which mountain is that? The cursed mountain. They found it. It's the right right time frame. It's the right type of writing. Everything's right, and this is what it said. Cursed, 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 cursed by the God, Yahweh. You will die cursed. Cursed, you will die. Cursed by Yahweh, cursed. Now, of course, this guy was having a bad day. We know that right (laughs) off the bat, right? But thank God he did, because... There it is. Right time, right place, everything matched. Scott Stripling said this, this is a challenge to the theory that states that Moses could not have written the Pentateuch because an alphabetic script did not exist. Here we see that it absolutely did exist. And it blew the skeptics out of the water. I was telling Ron tonight, think about all the people, all the Christians for all those years that didn't have the proof that we have. And they still believed. They still walk by faith. You see, there's been a lot of discoveries, and there's a lot more to be made. But we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. I remember one time somebody was trying to get me interested in Noah's Ark and all the stuff that was going on, and I just finally said, I'm, just, I'm not interested. He said, how can you not be interested? <laughs> and I told him, I said, look, if they find Noah's Ark, that would be really cool. But if they don't find it, it don't change nothing in the world. I believe it because this book says it. I believe this book is trustworthy. If it says it, I believe it. I walk by faith. I don't have to have the evidence. If, If we get the evidence, great. That's fine. But it doesn't change anything for me. One more thing outside the book, and this is something that I've gone back to over and over again, and that is the behavior of the apostles. Tradition tells us that 11 of the 12 apostles were killed for their faith. I put a list up there. Peter was crucified. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was killed by the sword. James, the son of Alphaeus, was crucified. Philip was crucified. Simon was crucified. Thaddeus was killed by arrows. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Bartholomew was crucified. And James, the son of Zebedee, killed with a sword. 11 of the 12, only the apostle John died a natural death 11 of the 12 gave their life because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ now here's the thing people may say well what does that prove a lot of people have died for a lie and by the way that's true take Muslim extremists right they're they're out there blowing themselves up because they believe they're going to go to heaven and have 70 virgins it's a lie But they believe it to be true. And that's correct. But here's what's different. You see, if the resurrection of Jesus was a lie, then the apostles knew it was a lie. Let me say that again. If the resurrection of Jesus was not true, they knew it wasn't true. So you're telling me that somehow we're to believe that all these men were tortured and suffered cruel deaths, all the while knowing that what they were dying for was nothing? I don't know about you, but that, that's beyond belief. That is beyond belief. Those men died because they had seen something that was worth giving their life for. They died because they had seen with their own eyes something that was worth, and they gladly, gladly gave their life. Not for a lie, but for the truth. One more quick thing. Last week, as I was finishing up teaching, somebody came and asked me a question. And they said, "What about the books that are not in our Bible?" Okay, and I wanted to cover that really quickly because I think that speaks to the truthfulness of the Bible. I don't know how many of you know this, but Catholic Bibles have several more books in the Old Testament than we have in our Bibles. Okay, these books are known as the Apocrypha. The word Apocrypha means uh, means hidden. Uh, this is a, a list of them. There are fourteen. I won't read them all, but those are the 14 books that are in the Catholic Bible, but they're not in our Bible. Okay, now these books, all 14 of them, were written in what's called the Silent Period between the end of the New Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There was a 400-year period where there was no prophets, nothing was going on, God wasn't speaking at all between the end of the New Testament and the beginning of the uh, end of the Old Testament, beginning of the New. So in this time frame, people wrote these 14 books. Now, the early Christian church debated whether those books belonged in the Bible. And they decided, no, they do not belong in the canon of Scripture. Now, why? I'm going to give you five reasons. Number one, none of the apocryphal books were ever included in the Hebrew Scriptures. The nation of Israel, forget Christianity for a moment, but the nation of Israel never accepted any of those books into the canon of the Old Testament. That's number one. Number two, no apocryphal book is ever cited by any New Testament writer or Jesus. If you read the New Testament, the the New Testament cites the Old Testament hundreds of times. Jesus uh, the number one book he cited was Psalms. The number two book is surprisingly he, he cited was exodus. He cited I think I counted them up. there was twelve to fifteen different Old Testament books that Jesus quoted from. but no New Testament writer and not Jesus, none of them ever quoted from an apocryphal book. No apocryphal book was written by a prophet, and no there is absolutely no fulfilled prophecy in any of those books and one of the main things when you read them and you can read them. You can find them online. Uh, the Apocrypha contain errors and doctrine that contradicts the Bible. For example, uh, they, they approve of magic. Uh, they approve of salvation by works. They teach that you can uh, give alms to uh, have your sins forgiven. They, they teach that people are basically born good when the Bible teaches the exact opposite. And there's just a lot of historical errors in them as well. So the early church decided, no, they're they're not in. The Roman Catholic Church officially added them in their Bible in 1546. Now, think about that. 1,500 years went by. And in 1546 at the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church finally decides we need to put them in. And they did. Now, why would they do that? Well, they did it in response to the Protestant Reformation. You see, the, the, the Protestants started reading the Bible. They finally had the Bible in English and they read it. And when they read it, they said, well, where's purgatory? Where's that at? Where, where does it say you can give alms and get your sins forgiven? Where's that at? Where does it say you can pray to the dead or pray for the dead or, or, or pray to angels? Where does it say that? They couldn't find it anywhere. So in order to justify those things that weren't in the Bible, the Catholic Church added them, those books, into the Bible. So basically, those books provide support for things the church teaches and practices which are not in agreement with the Bible. That's why they, that's why they did it, and that's why we didn't. And, and I just mentioned a few, praying for the dead, praying to saints, praying to angels, purgatory, atoning for sins by giving money. Uh, Those things are all taught in the Apocrypha, okay? One more quick thing. There's also a whole other list of books out there called Gnostic Writings. These were written between the 2nd and 3rd centuries, long after the apostles were dead. Uh, The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And so all these books just popped up around the 2nd or 3rd century. These are some of them. You'll hear people talk about them. Uh, The Acts of Peter, the Secret Gospel of Mark... The Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas. I don't know how in the world Judas gets a, gets a gospel here, but, um, but these, there, there's tons of them. And the early church rejected those outrights. None of those books were ever accepted as valid by the early church for two reasons. Number one, they had too many false things in them. I mean, they got some crazy stuff in them. But here's the bigger reason. They were written too late. Remember what I said earlier about me and Pastor Henry? They, they weren't eyewitnesses. They hadn't talked to eyewitnesses. They weren't there. How, could, how did they know what happened? So the, so the early church said, no way. You don't, you don't come into and, and corrupt the canon of Scripture that was written by the men that walked with him. So those books have always kept out. And that's important, why, by the way, because not only is the Bible trustworthy in what it contains, it's also trustworthy because of the things that it leaves out. Don't ever forget that. Not only in what it contains... But it won't let anything in that'll corrupt the gospel. Now, that's the end of my lesson on the truth. Let me tell y'all, this is an amazing book. Now, let me ask you a question Are you reading it? Are you reading it? Are are you studying it? Are are you meditating on it? Are, Are you holding on to this with everything that you have? Are you teaching it to your children? Are you living your life by it? Jesus said, I'm not going to judge you, but one day the words that I spoke will judge you. But Jesus also said, you judge yourself and you won't be judged. He also said the truth will set you free. See, if you learn the truth and you apply it to your life, it sets you free from judgment. It sets you free from sin. It sets you free from condemnation. But you got to know the truth. The truth. But it's not enough just to come in here and see these things and say, yeah, preach it, brother. Man, we've got to go home and read this thing. we got to live by this thing. We've got to teach this thing to our children and our grandchildren. Let's pray. Father, you're an amazing God, and thank you for this amazing, amazing book. Lord, we know that, that there's still things to come, and that's, that's perfectly all right with us, God. We believe, we believe this book is your holy word. We believe this word is truth. We believe that this word tells it like it really is. As Jesus told Pilate, this is the reason I came into the world. This is the reason I was born, to testify to what is true. God, I thank you personally for revealing the truth to me. You did that. I know there's so many in this room tonight that are so thankful, so thankful, that they know the truth. Now, God, I ask you for courage. I ask you for courage in this culture to stand for the truth. I I, I ask for courage that we won't be bullied, that we won't be beat down, that we won't be canceled. But no matter what comes, we will stand strong. We will be men like the apostles, willing to give our reputations, willing to give our lives, willing to give whatever it takes because we know the risen Savior. God help us to be those type of men and those type of women in Jesus name and we'll give you the glory Amen. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrofferville.com We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us at ROL Crawfordville for more information and directions.